You're listening to the Sunday morning message from Clouds Creek Baptist Church. Join us for worship Sunday morning at 11. Or for more information, visit cloudscreek.org. Good morning. First time using this headset. Let's see how this goes. I think I have it on right. So uh, I'm the substitute today. Blake's not with us if y'all didn't notice by now. Um, I got to do a little bit of an introduction before I can jump into this sermon, though, that we have today. In my studies lately, and, and what I've been, been looking into and, and digging around with lately, I keep coming across the same question that keeps at the, at the root of all of it. This is a question that I know a lot of preachers have preached on before. In fact, folks have been preaching this for about 2,000 years now. The disciples addressed this question. And this is a really important question I want to talk about with y'all this morning. And this question is, who is Jesus? That might be the most important question we could ever ask. The fate of where we're going to spend eternity depends on how we answer that question. But... That's a question that it's kind of hard to pin down one spot in the Bible to stick with, isn't it? I mean, you could preach that from the prophets, and you could preach that from the Gospels. You could preach it from the epistles or from revelations. I mean, that's at the very heart and central uh, thought of the entire book. And so this morning, instead of looking at what all the people have said about Jesus, I want to focus on what Jesus said about Jesus. I want to take him at his own word this morning. And so I'd like to invite y'all to turn with me to the book of John. This morning we're going to be covering the seven I am's. And if y'all are looking at the clock like I've glanced at over there, seven bullet points is probably too many to cover in 30 minutes. And so I know they say you're supposed to have three bullet points when you do a sermon. And so we're going to try to, to do seven really short ones. So if this feels like an introduction to like a big series, sorry, there's no follow-ups to this. We got one sermon, and we're going to, we're going to go quickly, and we're going to uh, kind of skip around through here. But in the book of John, there are seven places where Jesus said, I am, and then tells us something about himself, shares us a little piece of truth about him. And the first one comes in John chapter 6. And I say the first one, knowing full well I have no intention of going in order, but John chapter 6. Um, to give you all some backstory here, since we're going to try to go quickly. In John chapter 6, we see the feeding of the 5,000. This is an event where Jesus takes five barley loaves and two fish, and he feeds 5,000 men plus however many women and children there were. And when he gets done doing so, the people in 6, 14, and 15 over here, if I can find my own place, says, when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this really is the prophet who was to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus knew that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountains by himself. I'm going to stop right there for a minute. So the people, well, they were hungry. I don't, I don't know if, if y'all get hungry after a sermon. I know I do. They had, had been some time with Jesus, and they were hungry, and he feeds them, Right? this miraculous feeding of the 5,000, and they see this and they say, what a great prophet he is. But is that, is that accurate to who Jesus was? And they decided, he knows that they've decided they want to make him their earthly king because he can take care of their physical needs, right? 
And I mean, to be fair, if we were in this situation, I mean, if you had a, a person up here who could preach really well, and then a person over here saying free food, I imagine who would have the bigger audience. <laughs> and that's what they were seeing right here. And Jesus, he pulled back and withdrew from that. Because that's not who he is. That's not what he was about here. He, he is going to next walk on waters. The disciples went out ahead of him to cross the sea. And the same crowd of people sees him on the other side. And they come up to talk to him, right? And when, and when they come up to talk to him over here in the, the early 30s at this point over here, they, um, they, they tell him that we're looking for him. And he's like, yeah, but... Y'all weren't looking for me for the right reasons. Y'all came because y'all ate the food. And they, they go on and they have this dialogue back and forth over here. And in the end, they, they start asking him, what are the, the works of God that they should be doing? And Jesus is telling them, God's work is to, to believe in me. And then they demand proof. They want a sign. They want to see something from heaven. And they got the sort of implication that, you know, when, when Moses was leading the people in the wilderness, there was like manna that had come down from heaven and such. And Jesus is going to tell them, Moses didn't give y'all any food from heaven. God did. I imagine that was like a mic drop moment right there. Sort of mind-blowing. God gave us food? Yes, that's who gave y'all food from heaven. <laughs> and the same can be true of all the, the prophets in the Old Testament, right? None of the prophets did miracles God did miracles. The prophets were the tools that he used at the time to do it. And then Jesus is going to say something profound to the people here. As they're, they're talking about this, this heavenly bread, and Jesus tells them here in verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. In fact, let me, let me go on and, and read y'all. Just a smidge right there on it. It says, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. All right, I'm going to stop again. And so, this proclamation that Jesus is making to the people here, this is, this is something big that's easy to skip over if you read it quickly. He doesn't tell the people that he brings them the bread of life. Now, does he? He isn't going to the heavenly supermarket and picking up that heavenly loaf and coming down with it. This isn't some special variety of wheat that makes heaven bread. Jesus is the bread of life. You can't separate him from his gift to us. This isn't that you can like the message and not the messenger. He is this message that he is bringing here. He goes on in verse 51 over here to tell the people, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. All right. Now, didn't the people say this man's a prophet just a minute ago? Just like a day before on the other side of the lake, they're thinking, prophet, what prophet could say, I can sustain God's people with my own flesh? None of them. That would have been blasphemous. Jesus here is proclaiming that he has the power and authority of God in this scene. Not only that, he's also prophesying what's to come. The flesh that he's speaking of, that he's going to, to feed them off of, 
he's talking about the cross right there. If he's talking about bringing heavenly life, he paid for that with his flesh at the cross. He sees it already. He knows it already. And he's already teaching it. Now, if y'all will turn with me, because I I could dig down all day in that passage right there. We we don't have time for that. Let's go over to chapter 8. That's the first I am. I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, I'm going to give y'all a quick summary again. Uh, This chapter starts off with the the story of the adulterous woman that the scribes and the Pharisees bring out before Jesus that they want to stone her. And Jesus has that godly wisdom that de-escalates the situation and the woman is safe and the crowd's dispersing. And Jesus is going to make this miraculous claim over here to him in verse 12. We'll read 12 and 13. It says, Then Jesus spoke to them again, being the Pharisee group here. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And so the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying about yourself, but your testimony is not valid. All right, before we get to their response, let's look at Jesus' words. I am the light of the world. I was talking with my, uh, my class on Wednesday night that when I was little, my parents took me to like this underground cave that had like a lake in it, and it was like deep in the ground, and the tour guides like turned the lights off for just a second, and you can see what darkness really is. Or rather, you can't see anything at all. That's maybe a more accurate statement. When you're in total darkness, it's uneasy. You're disoriented. You have no idea which way to go. But Jesus here is proclaiming that he has illuminated the way for the world. He is the one shining bright. But it goes a step further right there. He didn't say that I'm one of the lights in this world. He didn't say that's me and the sun and your your fluorescence and your incandescence and any other essence out there that I don't know of about it and all the candles and flashlights. He's not one amongst them. He said, I am the light of the world. So he's not talking about a physical light here. He's talking about a spiritual one, that he is guiding the way for us, for us to see. It's because of Jesus that we know to resist temptation. And because of Jesus, that we've been able to see the path of of following him in righteousness. And we are able to, to see the path of growing spiritually. He is the one who has lit this up for us and no one else. But to his audience at the day, the Jews that he was talking to here, these Pharisees, I I can't see in their mind, but I imagine where they must have thought about. Because there's been a, a huge claim like this before in the Bible. See, back in the Exodus story, when the people had come up out of Egypt, they were following a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night as it led them as to where they were supposed to go. And just picture with me now that pillar of fire illuminating the night sky. It wasn't making the most direct route to Canaan, but they knew exactly how to follow. They could see it clearly. And that pillar of fire, as it speaks about over in Exodus, it is representative of the very presence of God to the people. They know that they're on the right track because God is saying this is the route to take. And right here, at that moment, the very presence of God was with the people again. And he was proclaiming to them, I'm the light. That I can show you the way. And the Pharisees, all oh, the Pharisees over here, they said, your testimony is not valid. Think about that. There's a lot of folks today that don't believe that Jesus 
is who he claimed to be. They don't believe that Jesus is God. They, they accuse him of a lot of things. There are people that would accuse Jesus of being a great moral teacher. I've heard that one several times. But I want you to think about that. If he is a great moral teacher and this is what he's teaching, then how could you make a stance on that if that's all you believe he is? He would be deceiving everyone if there was no more truth to his claim. But no. If Jesus is telling the truth here, then again, we have to see him as God himself. And yes, he is a great moral teacher. Don't, don't misquote me on that. But that'd be like saying that an NFL quarterback can throw 10 yards. That's like the understatement of the century over there. There's so much more to him than that. And he goes on and refutes the Pharisees using their own laws in the rest of the chapter here to show them that his testimony is valid even to their standards. Let's turn it again now. Let's go over to chapter 15. I've skipped forward a bit. In chapter 15, Jesus is, is going to make his next claim. I'm going to read the first five verses to you here. He says, I am the true vine. My father in the vine is the vineyard keeper. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are my branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. All right, we've changed up the whole analogy from light and dark over here. The vine is the piece of the plant that's attached to the roots that bring all the nutrients up. The branches are wholly dependent on the vine to sustain them. In this analogy right here, we see that not only did Jesus give us the bread of life from earlier, that we would have a piece, but he is continually giving it to us. We see here that he has sustained his people. I mean, if you lop a branch off of a, a tree or a vine or whatever, just leave it on the ground, it'll slowly wither and die. But when it's attached, not only does it live, but it grows. It grows and it blossoms and it blooms and it produces all sorts of fruits. And that is what Jesus is giving to us here. And so far we've seen then, and just the first three, and I gotta speed up, but just in the first three here, we've seen that he's the bread of life. We've seen that he's the light of the world. We've seen that he's the true vine. I mean, off of that alone, there's no other thing to say than he is the Son of God himself. As there's no angel or preacher or prophet or pastor or anyone else who can make such bold claims with any sort of truth to it. But we're only halfway through. Let's turn back a couple pages here to John chapter 10. I told you I wasn't going to go in order. And John chapter 10 over here, in verse 7 through 9, he tells the people here, I'll read that to you. So Jesus said again, I assure you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. 
A thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. All right. Another analogy here now that he's giving us. You got a big sheep pen. It's full of the sheep. Those sheep are us. That's God's people. The gate to get into the sheep pen, that's Jesus. If you enter by any means other than the gate, then you're not a sheep. You're a thief or a robber who's come to mess things up. Jesus is the gatekeeper in that regard, or the, or the gate in that regard. That he is the one who holds the key to who can come in to the Lord's people. He is the one who is, who is safeguarding God's people. And he goes on in the same chapter to give us the next one where he says, I am the good shepherd. Still chapter 10. The shepherd taking that same analogy just a step further over here, that he is the one that protects the Lord's people. And he's the one who, who keeps them from wandering off and bringing, he brings them back in and he looks out for them and he finds their green pastures and he finds their still waters from Psalms 23. He's the one who uh, disciplines them and, and he's the one who loves them. And that's all part of what the shepherd is supposed to do. Jesus isn't a hired hand by God. He talks about them in chapter 10 here. Jesus isn't just a shepherd either. He put the word the in front of it for a reason here. He is the good shepherd. The one that David spent so much time talking about in Psalms 23. The next one we find comes in John 14. I'm getting dizzy turning pages over here, y'all. I've got to remember to ask Blake for more Sundays in a row next time I want to do something like this. We'll split this up so we can focus in. In John 14, 6, this is uh, going into this was when he's talking to his disciples, telling them that he's about to be gone. He's going away to heaven. He doesn't say heaven, but he's saying that he's leaving, which is you know, what he went to go do. But he tells them that they know the way. He's going to prepare a place for them. He's going to come back for them. And then Thomas over here asks him, he says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And then Jesus told him in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You may see some overlap in these now. We just talked about how he was the, the sheep gate. See, here again, no one goes to the Father except through him. He's, he's the only entrance, the only way in. But to tell him here that he is the way, I think goes a, a step further than that. If you want to know how to get to the Father, if you want to know how to get to heaven, it's not that he's telling them a way, he is the way. I mean, think about that again. Like when we talk about with the bread of life over here. I can sit up here and I can tell you how, how to go. You've got to believe in Jesus. Or I can sit up here and I can tell you about math or any other subject in school. I can tell you about it. But I am not that math and I am not that way. I'm just letting you know what I know. Jesus is the way to God. There is no other path to take. Again, we could stick on that one for a while as well. Let's just move right along into John 11. This is the final one of these things. I might have sped up too much. This is the story of Lazarus in John 11. This is a dear family friend of Jesus here. 
And Lazarus has passed away, and he's been dead for days. And Jesus comes to where he's buried at, and Martha, his sister, runs out to him, and she's grieving as you would expect someone to be grieving who lost a loved one. And she tells him over here that if, if you were here, Jesus, my brother would still be alive. And she knows that. And he says, but even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus replies to her in 23, he says, your brother will rise again. And Martha now, Martha, she knows, she knows her scripture fairly well, apparently. As she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus is like, no, no, you don't understand. He, he tells her in 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. Do you believe this? And now, what happens next kind of confuses me a bit over here because she just said that you know, anything that he asks, she knows that God will give him, but then he's like, let's roll away the tomb. And she's like, but my brother's been dead for days. Like, come on, roll it away. We know what's coming next here. And Jesus calls Lazarus out of the grave. Because Jesus here was claiming when he said that I am the resurrection, that he holds the very keys of life and death itself. He can give life to whom he wants to give life to. He can raise the dead. He rose himself from the dead, as we see right here. And so what we've seen then is that he's the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the sheep gate and the good shepherd. He is the true vine. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the resurrection and the life. These statements should all add up to point us to only one conclusion about who Jesus is. Only one possibility of who he could be. But you know, we could have drew that from the very beginning, couldn't we, when he said, I am, and just stopped right there before we even got to the word, the bread of life. The great I am, that calls all the way back again to the book of Exodus when God told Moses that through the burning bush. That is the claim that he didn't have a past tense to him. And so when I've been talking this morning, I haven't been saying who Jesus was. I've been saying who Jesus is. Similar in this claim right here, he didn't say that he will one day be the resurrection when he comes back from the dead. No, there's no future tense to him either. It's permanent present. Jesus is and always is. Past, present, and future. And so if we see this about Jesus, if we can acknowledge this claim about him, that he truly is the Son of God, and that we can acknowledge about him then, of what all the epistles where we see that Paul spells this out when he says that he is the, the very image of the invisible God. And we can see where he talks about how he, he contains the full essence of God. And then we can see over in the book of John, not book of John, the book of Revelations written by John in 19, where it, he's riding on his horse and we have the title, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. All that lines up once you can finally see and acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. And so today... And our invitation here, before we get into it, I, I want you to think about this. Because it's easy to sing praises 
to just some generic Jesus, some great prophet, some angel, some holy man, some moral teacher. But are we singing praises? Are we praying to the living Son of God himself? Is that who we are acknowledging him to be? Is he that Lord in our life? And if he's not, I'd like to invite you to come to see him that way and to know him that way. For him to be the light of the world to you and the bread of life to you. Let us pray, y'all. Father, thank you for this congregation this morning, for the the fervor they have shown and and the hunger they have for the truth here, Lord. I know this is a people who wants to seek you out and wants to follow you. And so, Lord, I pray that you will be the light to them so they can see it, that you'll be the way to them so they will be able to follow. And, Lord, if there's any here who does not know you, I pray that you will make yourself known to them so that they too will be able to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Father, please go with us as we leave here today and help us to shine, shine your radiant glory to the world around us so that everyone will know that we serve the Son of God. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen. Thank you.